I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones, and today I'm speaking with Alex Abramovich, who has a piece in the last issue of the LRB on the history of country music. It's a review of Ken Burns' documentary series, broadcast on PBS last year and BBC4 earlier this year, and it draws out some of the troubling elisions in that series and in Burns' other documentaries, for example, on the American Civil War, especially when it comes to questions of race. But today we're going to be talking less about Burns, I think, and more about country music away from the documentary, though those troubling questions won't go away. Hello, Alex, and thank you for joining me. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. So I thought we could begin, not at the beginning, because it's hard to say when that was, but um, at the moment in the 1920s that the label country music was first applied. So it wasn't a term used by the people who played string band music in the South to describe what they played, was it? So who who came up with the name and and who did they give it to and and why? My understanding is that You know, in the 19th century, people talked about love songs and they talked about religious songs. And those were really the distinctions. And you were either playing hymns or or singing hymns or you were um, singing anything else. And anything else was really a love song, whether it was a murder ballad or anything else. And then once they started recording the music, um, they needed marketing categories to know where to put the the records in the racks and to uh, to reach specific audiences. So if, if you look at uh, old records from the 1920s, 78 RPM records, you'll see a lot of a lot of jazz albums are labeled Foxtrot, for instance, Cakewalk, things like that. And, and you know, um, I think jazz was still a, a dirty word back then. So you don't really see jazz. And then, um, you know, af- after a while, these uh, the taxonomy coalesces. So you know, country music before it was called country was was marketed as as hillbilly music, and hillbilly was a uh, you know um, hillbilly. Those were fighting words down south, but um, those started when um, there was a band in the studio, and and uh, their their producer said, "Who should we call? You know, which 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 should we call you?" And he said, and the you know the singer said, "Well, we don't have a name. We're just a bunch of hillbillies," and and they slapped it on the label. And, uh, and, and then it was hillbilly music and eventually that morphed into country and it morphed into country and, and Western and, and, uh, equivalent, uh, of this in black music that wasn't jazz was, uh, you know, first they were race records and then they were, uh, then there was a Harlem hit parade and then there was, uh, uh, rhythm and blues and, you know, these things paralleled each other, uh, to an extent. And then the equivalent in, and uh well popular music was always popular music but rock was rock and roll and then it was rock and 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 part of this was was marketing on the record company's part and part of it was uh the music press and one thing that it was that these these labels did was they 
segregated music, or maybe that's not quite the right word, but they divided them up racially. Is that right? The country, country and Western was played by, it was string band music played by white people. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this fascinating thing happens, I think, in, in the 19th century at some point that I haven't really seen anyone, anyone write about. But, um, you know, there's country music, and uh, Ketch Secor talks about this in the, in the Ken Burns documentary, and he's very eloquent about it. But country music, he says, is, is American music when it follows the path of the fiddle and later the guitar, the banjo, um, string instruments. Um, so there was string instrument music, which was played by, you know, everyone. Um, Thomas Jefferson's brother played the violin, and, and when he would visit uh, Tom Jefferson at, at Monticello, he would uh, take his violin along, and, and uh, after dinner he would bring it, uh, take it out back to where the enslaved people lived and, and uh and play his violin and, and dance all night. There's a memoir by uh, a guy named uh, Isaac Jefferson, who was a, a nail maker on the plantation, um, enslaved nail maker. And he remembers uh, Randolph Jefferson is, I, I think the quote is, he says, a mighty simple man used to come along, used to come, come into our quarters and, and sing and, and play all night. So going all the way back to the beginning there, there were, you know, these frolics and, and, uh, and people playing string music uh, together. And then, of course, there was, you know, brass band music, military music. And, um, you know, down in uh, in Memphis and in, in New Orleans, you end up with, with ragtime basically being played on brass instruments, which sounds a lot like jazz. And string music follows its own path, so... Uh, and you end well. You what you end up with is is white people, thanks partly to minstrelsy, playing instruments associated with enslaved people. So, string band music migrates to European Americans. Brass band music migrates to to Black Americans. And I remember um, I was speaking to a musician named Oludara who um, lives in Harlem, but was was born in Mississippi and grew up in Mississippi. And uh, members of his family that were playing all the way back to the rabbit foot minstrels and the teens in the, the beginning of the 20th century. And then one of his kids is, uh, Nas, the, the rapper. So he just all these generations in, in one family. And I made the mistake of calling him a jazz musician and, and he bristled and, um, and he said, I'm, I'm not a jazz musician. I'm a, I'm a Mississippian. I said, okay, what does that mean? And he said, well, Mississippi music is just a few degrees removed from, from African music. Um, and I said, well, you wouldn't, so he, so he said, I'm a, I'm an African musician. And I said, you wouldn't call yourself an African American musician. And he said, no, well, what I play is, is African music and Africans play all over the world. And, you know, if they live in South America, you wouldn't call it African South American music. Um, and if you were born in Europe, you wouldn't call it Afro European music. And it's just like any other music. If you're Mexican living in America, you're playing Mexican music and I'm playing African music. Um, and I said, okay, well, jazz musicians who call themselves jazz musicians, are they playing jazz? And, and he said, yeah, if they call themselves jazz musicians, they're playing jazz, they're playing European instruments. And they're a group of people playing, um, they're a group of people from one nation playing a group of instruments from another nation. And that's a strange thing if you think about it. And he said, um, if you saw a white band playing all African instruments, you know, that'd be a strange thing. What would that be called? And we had a long conversation about that and decided that'd be called, you know, bluegrass music because the banjo is, uh, I mean, uh, Thomas Jefferson also in his notes on the state of Virginia has a, has a footnote, 
Uh, and he says that the instrument that is natural to them, meaning to Africans uh, on his plantation, is, is the banjo, which originally is a you know string, a, a gourd with with a neck and strings attached to it. So a roundabout way of answering your your question was, you know, string band music, not just down south, but but in in all of the American colonies, was music that was played at, at dances and frolics, and there were musicians uh, who went back and forth, and uh, there were integrated bands, professional, amateur, and there was plenty of amazing string band music and. A lot of it survives on on record, made by black musicians. Um, a lot of it is jug band music from from Kentucky and, and Memphis, Tennessee. But once record companies out of New York started recording this music and and marketing it to mostly Southern audiences, they uh, they divided it into a race series for black music and a hillbilly series or old time music, whatever it was called at the time for for white audiences and. Um, and this interesting thing happened where black bands that played string music eventually got forced out of the market because it, it didn't make any sense in terms of the taxonomy to talk about if a white band was playing string music, that was hillbilly music. That was fine. If a black musician like Charlie Patton or Skip James or uh, Memphis Minnie was was singing the blues that was fine that was that was race music but if a band like um Cannon's Jug Stoppers playing string band music with uh the jug would sort of be in place of the of the tuba carrying the bass you know, there was no longer a category for that because it 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 sounded like hillbilly music, but it couldn't be hillbilly music because it was it wasn't a white band. So, one of the great ironies of of American music, once it's vernacular music, once it started being recorded, was that you know down south, um, music was was one of the greasier places within Jim Crow and within Southern apartheid, where folkways could travel more or less with many caveats, but more or less freely between white folks and black folks. Um, and that sort of stopped being the case because record companies outside of New York, all of a sudden were imposing these racial distinctions, uh, where I wouldn't say nobody had thought to impose them before, but, but in a, in a sense in which, in which they didn't exist. And, and that of course goes all the way up into the fifties and, and, and the sixties. And Tommy, you and I have, talked about this yeah well and and beyond in the way that you know little nas little nas x that old town road it wasn't in the country charts they didn't want to put it in the country charts until billy ray cyrus then sang it with him and then it was a country song so then it could be in the country charts and that was that was last year the old town road i'm gone right till i can't no more i got the horses in the back horse stock is attached Head is mad at black, got the boosters black to match, riding on a horse. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing that one of, one of the last, you know, obviously the country is segregated six ways to Sunday in all sorts of ways, but, but one of the, you know, one of the last proud stands of segregation seems to be in the, in the billboard charts. Um, you know, Old Town Road is, is sort of a fascinating example because if, if memory serves, they said it when it was so clearly a country song, but they, but they were still trying to exclude it from the country charts. They said, well, it's a parody of a country song. It's not a country song, but you know, you could say the same thing of probably 30% of 
country songs, right? They're all self-parodies in a sense. They're all parodies. I mean, certainly something like Miranda Lambert's Plastinum is definitely a a parody, a country parody, and that, you know, went Plastinum. My understanding is there was a a very brief period in maybe 1960, 1961, where they got rid of the segregated charts in in Billboard, and they just had one one chart. And uh, I think it had to do more with Motown than anything else, where they just threw in the towel and said, okay, it's all just music. It's American music. Um, and, uh, you know, Barry Gordy, who founded Motown, made a point of saying the slogan, Motown's company motto was the sound of young America, not the sound of, you know, black America or anything else, but the sound of young America. And there was a pointed message behind that. So they've disaggregated the charts. And then it's, it's, it's sort of your fault, because my understanding that they is that they became segregated again, once the Beatles came over and once the British invasion happened, they said, oh, oh great. We can We've got white music go back again. to the way things should be. The <laughs> um, mention of Motown, Motown, I mean, the other way with these things of how to def- define these things to the extent that it's helpful to define them, but the Motown was recorded in Detroit, so that one, the country music is music recorded in Nashville. Is that, there's some, any truth in that? Or? Well, Motown is definitely recorded in Detroit. I mean, Mo- Motown is, it's Motown because they built cars in... Motown, yeah. Yeah, in, in Motor City. But country was recorded, you know, all, uh, Nashville certainly became the the capital, but I mean, country is the, the sort of what they call the big bang of country music is is the cattle call audition that uh, Ralph Peer held in Bristol, Tennessee. Um, and that's where Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family were discovered a bunch, along with a bunch of other great artists. Um, and then it migrated eventually to Nashville, but there was certainly stuff being recorded in Memphis in the twenties that, that counts as country music, I would say. And, and as time goes on as the, and as the great migration carries, um, workers, um, North and, and West, I mean, it ends up, uh, Merle Haggard's people come from Oklahoma and end up in Bakersfield, California. Um, lots of people end up in Cincinnati where, um, King records, which is mostly remembered for being James Brown's label, um, records seminal rock and roll artists, rhythm and blues artists like, um, pardon the word, seminal, like Wynoni Harris, um, but it's also recording, you know, Hank Penny and the Delmore Brothers, um, and, uh, and Sid Nathan, who ran King Records in Cincinnati, would encourage his, uh, rhythm and blues artists to cover his country songs and to a lesser extent, vice versa. Um, because there was more money to be made in, in, in collecting royalties that way. So a, a lot of, a lot of people pay a lot of, ter- a lot of attention to what Sam Phillips was doing down in Memphis, but, um, it sort of starts happening all over the place in the, and not just in the fifties, but, but before that, um, where white artists and black artists are covering each other's songs. And, um, but this also goes all the way back to the beginnings of America where, you know, the, the cakewalk, for instance, is a, is a dance that um, African-Americans would would dance sort of with exaggerated stiffness to make fun of white people dancing. Uh, and white people didn't get the joke and they would start doing that dance and things would bounce back and forth. Um, so the whole thing is very messy and very beautiful and very horrible and very American. Um, but every, you know, every, every generation that comes up in record companies and the music press wants to put their own sort of cookie cutter stamps on it in their own marketing categories. And, um, and like too many other things in this country, it ends up being 
divided along along racial lines. Whereas, and and it's not that there are no differences in how people live in the music they make, but those differences don't necessarily align with what comes at, what comes out of the sausage factory. He's in the jailhouse now. I told him once or twice to quit playing cards and shooting dice. He's in the jailhouse now. Looking at maybe sort of one song in particular to look at the the way the songs get written and covered and played by different artists. That um, this one which you you sent me the this list of the the many different versions of it. He's in the jailhouse now, which most people are probably now familiar with from the version in No Brother Where Art Thou, the Coen Brothers movie, which is based on the Jimmy Rogers, is that right? Late twenties version, and it's about I have a friend named Rambling Bob. But actually, that wasn't the, the earliest version of the song, was it? No, I think there were three other ones that that I found recently. Um, starting with Blind Blake, who Blind Blake, who recorded it, uh, I believe, a year before Jimmy Rogers. I think Jimmy Rogers was nineteen twenty eight, and Blind Blake recorded in nineteen twenty seven. And uh, and if you listen to the Blind Blake version, it's it's uh, pointedly political. It's a song about a guy who uh, gets thrown in jail for voting twice for a black political candidate but you know he's he's got he's got that amazing line if he should have you know should have left white folks business alone or something like that right and and the other thing that might be worth us talking about that's that's sort of as interesting, but I couldn't get into it in the Ken's Burns piece is, but I'm sure we talked about this is the paradigm that they actually had to work with was it. And, and it's interesting because it's, it's very early globalization stuff happening is all of the, um, all of the American record companies, Columbia and uh, Thomas Edison's company, Gramophone in the UK and Victor, they're rushing to all these other countries, Italy, Egypt, China to record local music um, and sell it to those audiences. Then at some point, about 15 years later, they figure out that they can sell that same music to immigrant groups in the U.S. And then once they really are convinced that people are starved for self-representation, then they get the idea that they can start selling Southern vernacular music to Southern audiences. So the whole thing is is a crazy boomerang of having to go around the whole world and ending up in, you know, in Bristol, Tennessee. And when did, when did that realization happened was that in the 50s no i mean that happens in i i think that you know berliner and and victor gramophone those are all uh running around at the start of the century so there's a german scout uh heinrich Baum, who ends up in hong kong in in 1906 to record chinese music and he finds out that columbia and odeon and victor have are, are all there recording already so it's this race to mine these natural resources of, of, of local music. Then at the same time in America, you have these giant waves of, of immigration after the civil war. So they, they take the same paradigm of recording local music for local audiences. And they start selling klezmer music in, on the Lower East side in New York city. Um, they start selling, you know, Chinese music in Chinatowns. And that happens in the teens, 1915, 1916, 17. And then uh, after 1920, when, you know, Crazy Blues comes out and and um, sort of the blues market opens up, even though at this point it doesn't really sound like what we think of as, as you know, Charlie Patton or, or Skip James' Deep Delta Blues. It's what, what people call urban blues. 
so sort of incorrectly. A few years after that, in 1923, they record Eck Robertson, who's the first, uh, 1922 maybe, he's the first violinist. Who, he shows, he's a guy who shows up in New York in his dad's Confederate war uniform. He grew up playing in Confederate. They would have these conve- Confederate veteran conventions down south, gigantic conventions, thousands of people, and they would have fiddle contests. And that was a big incubator for country music. So he shows up with his with his fiddle and gets recorded. Um, Ralph Pierre goes down to um, Georgia and records Fiddlin' John Carson, which is the first real country hit, I believe, in 1925. Is that the little, the little old log cabin in the lane? Now I'm getting old and feeble and I cannot work no more. That rusted-plated hoe I've laid to rest. Oh, Marston, stand uh, which is an old, you know, an old minstrel song, nostalgia for the little old cabin that was, you know, really a slave shack. And then the, you know, then Charlie Patton gets recorded. Um, and, and what they discover is that, um, you know, nobody cared about this audience. And, and these were the poorest of the poor sharecroppers, both, both white and black people who had no money. But it turned out that they would save all of their money all week to buy a record that wasn't a Caruso record. It was a record. What they really wanted was a record that sounded just like them because they were starved for not even self-representation, but just representation in the culture. Um, and, and here it was, it was, you know, validation and all, all of these people who didn't own uh, record players at home and might not have had electricity were coming home with, with records. Um, it's, it's incredibly interesting, isn't it? Back to the, um, He's in the jailhouse now. I mean, again, maybe it's just this wish, which I obviously have as well, which is a problem and I need to get away from. But the Blind Blake was a blues, I would think of as a as a blues musician. Yeah, sure, but and, and he was a blues musician, but why wasn't Jimmy Rogers a blues musician? And why wasn't Hank Williams a blues musician? I mean, it's 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 all blues, you know. Well, say, yeah, or, or, or can you yodel the blues? I don't know, maybe that's the, maybe you can't yodel the blues, I don't know. Well, so here's here's something I was thinking about last night as I was staying up too long thinking about talking to you this morning is, you know, I'm 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 wary of these gunky old narratives that build up around the music, and um, you you see Ken Burns doing this. I don't mean to beat up on on Ken Burns any any more than I did in the in the issue the other week, but but one thing you see him doing over and over because he actually wants to adjust for um, for the for the lack of people of color in his documentary which is a documentary called country. So, you know, it's going to be a movie about white folks, but you know, he, he tries to adjust and he tries to adjust. So you get these stories about how the Carter family had a, you know, African-American song scout that they would travel with and play with. Sometimes Hank Williams had a, a guy, uh, Rufus Payne, who, uh, who taught him Bill Monroe had um, an African-American fiddle player and guitarist named Arnold Schultz, who is often credited, who there's endless controversy about in the trade, in the, in the academic journals about whether or not this is true. But he, people seem to think that he invented Travis picking on guitar, which is picking where you just use your index finger and your thumb, incredibly important in, in, in country guitar playing. Um, 
then you get a narrative of um, a, a similar narrative of uh, Sam Phillips had a, a groundkeeper on his farm named uh, Uncle Uncle Silas Payne. Um, we can talk about why people were called Uncle if you want, um, who taught him a lot about music. Uh, Jim Dickinson, he was the last person Sam Phillips ever recorded at, at, at Sun Records. Uh, he's on the last sings, uh, the last Sun single also, you know, learned music from black musicians on, on Beale street. So, so there's always this sop thrown to, to country artists that, well, they learned from a, from a black musician. And, and when you sort of go through the greats, there's often a black musician sort of lurking in the shadows there who was very important in an early stage of their development, but, you know, wasn't really allowed on the stage of the grand old Opry. But the more I think about the persistence of these, of these narratives, um, which are always told as, as stories about individuals, when you really think of them as a story about the collective, what it's really a story about is right. White people and black people were playing the same music and they were playing it together. And sure. If you fragment it into individual stories, you get these inspiring stories about how well A.P. Carter got along with, you know, his song scout, you know, which also double his stories about how racially enlightened people like Hank Williams might have been because they would have been playing with musicians of color in, in the you know deepest, darkest days of segregation. But that's not really the story those stories tell in, in aggregate. The story those stories tell are there was one culture and it was Southern culture and it was there was high Southern culture and there was low Southern culture. And the truth is that if somebody like Carl Perkins might've had much more in common with, you know, the other sharecroppers he was picking cotton with in Tennessee. So one thing that the, the insistence on racial divisions in music has and everything else obscures is class divisions. Yeah. It's, it, in America, we, we pretend that class doesn't exist and we're obsessed with race. Another way of looking at it might be that race doesn't exist and it's, it's all a story about class, but we, we don't have the faintest idea of how to talk about it in this country because this whole country is built on the notion that there is no class, that you can rise from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high or fall from the highest of the high into the gutter. But, but of course it's, it's, it's not true. But, um, but you know, there, there's no money in that, in that narrative. There's money in keep in dividing people. Yeah, and also, I mean, so many country songs are about sort of nostalgia for being poor. That way, it's, but I mean, maybe Dolly Parton isn't a typical example. But a song like "Case of Many Colors." Although we had no money, I was rich as I could be in my coat of many colors. My mama made for me. I mean, I don't know if she was a millionaire by the time she was writing that, but she was very successful and she was remembering her childhood and her poverty, but saying that bizarre line, one is only poor, only if you choose to be, which she can't possibly believe because no one with as much business acumen as Dolly Parton could actually <laughs> really believe a line like that. But I don't know, the, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say here, but something about the, the romanticising of, of poverty... Or, or nobody with with the empathy that she must have had for the people that she grew up with, who didn't make it out of the crab barrel, could have uttered that line, right? Because it's obviously Dolly Parton is a genius, but Dolly Parton is a once in a generation genius. She couldn't have looked around and, and felt that way about the the people around her. I mean, it, it, it's also nostalgia, though, for you know, for an economic system. And here, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought about the weird and intriguing parallels about sharecrop of, of between sharecropping and the company store and 
the way record industry contracts are structured to this day. I can't say I have, no. I mean, they're both sort of systems of indentured servitude, where you're advanced money that you can't ever hope to recoup, and you end up deeper and deeper in the hole. And uh, Prince made a big deal out of this in the 90s when he uh, you know, changed his name to an unpronounceable symbol and scrawled the word slave on the side of his face and then started telling people that if you don't own your master, your masters, meaning if you don't own your master recordings, then you're enslaved to the record companies. But, but, it, but it's interesting the, the persistence of, of the old economic system. Um, you know, when, when, when you look at the sort of rockabilly side of country performers, when you look at Carl Perkins or, or Johnny Cash, these, these were people who grew up picking, picking cotton too, down in Arkansas, Tennessee's, the Arkansas, Tennessee sharecroppers. Elvis Presley's family weren't even sharecroppers. They were in, in terms of the case system, they were lower than sharecroppers. With the decline of record sales, CD sales, and the rise of internet music, and again, coming back to Lil Nas X, and I feel we ought to be talking about more contemporary musicians than just him, but the way that he became, that song became popular on TikTok. And so the, one of the ways it was able, I mean, it managed to get round those, the categories of the music industry. But TikTok and Facebook and Instagram and all the rest of them, that's still their huge corporations monetizing these things. But do they offer more freedom than the kind of the, the way that music was recorded between 1920 and 1995? I mean, there's certainly a, you know, decentralization of, of, of the means of production and means of distribution. And, and you end up with a song like Old Town Road, which, which comes out of nowhere and is created in someone's bedroom and is distributed via social media. And then it lands in, you know, it lands in, in, in the middle of, of the culture and the culture has no idea what to do with it. I mean, it's so clearly a country song, but it can't, of course, how can it be a country song? And everyone's up in arms and, you know, still writing think pieces about it. I, I think it's interesting that if, if you look at American vernacular music, I can't speak for other countries, but the moments of real innovation and some of the most exciting, beautiful moments of music, and one of them is what happens in America sort of between 1927 and 1932-33 when the Great Depression hits and, and the recording industry collapses, is um, you get, you get a, um, an explosion of record labels like, for instance, Paramount Records out of Wisconsin, which is a chair-building company that all of a sudden starts bringing musicians up to record in, in Wisconsin, Skip James, Charlie Patton. People from all over the place stream in and start, and start recording this music that they've been playing, not just for the past year, but, but there's a backlog of music that goes back decades that all of a sudden there's a five-year window and this music gets recorded. And it's all the music that ends up on Harry Smith's anthology of American music. And it's it's a whole world of music and that, that then disappears and is, it's almost stuck in amber. And it happens again in, um, in the fifties, partly as a result of, uh, magnetic tape, it becomes cheap to open up your own recording studio uh, or your recording business like Sam Phillips does, you know, and you can open up a business where you're recording proms and bar mitzvahs, but then you start recording musicians at night in your garage. And, um, and that's rock and roll. And, and all of the moments of just explosive creativity in America really seem to coincide with moments where the three or four major labels that, that control um, 95% of the music that's released lose control of the marketplace or, or stop understanding 
what's happening in the marketplace and are willing to give scouts like Ralph Peer a chance. The same thing happens in Hollywood in, in the late 60s and early 70s with the rise of you know, Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola. Um, and there are these moments where either the industry loses control or just throws its hands up and lets the kids take over and magical things happen. And I, I think technologically we're, we certainly seem to be poised for that. And, but the question here seems to me to be related to all any number of other questions we could be asking about the future of democracy on, on up and on down is, is, is there so much, what is the signal to noise ratio now? And is there any way for that music to, to get through and, and to stick? Or are we just all stuck in our bedrooms making music for, you know, for ourselves or for our nearest and dearest, or is there, is there a mainstream left to, if, I don't know the answer to that. Do you know the answer to that? I think there is, but maybe you and I are too old to be part of it. I don't know. In terms of, in terms of pop music, I think you have to trust the kids to know what they're listening to. I was thinking, uh, the last time, uh, Van Halen trended on Twitter that I can tell in 2019 before the pandemic hit was in December when Billie Eilish, uh, I think she was on Jimmy Kimmel's show and he was asking her, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And he said, what do you think of Van Halen? And she said, what's a Van Halen? But again, she's, I think she knew what she, I think, I don't believe that's a, a genuine naive question. You only, you only say that if you know damn well who he is. I would, I would guess. That makes it all the better though, right? Yeah. 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 Let's talk about Van Halen for a bit. The, um, because that's something that you pointed out to me. We were talking last week about, um, well, again, to, um, coming back to racial segregation in music, that MTV in the 80s didn't play black artists at peak peak viewing times. And there's that video with David Bowie where Bowie turns it back and starts interrogating the MTV VJ about why don't you play more black artists. And what you said about, well, you should say it now, about Quincy Jones getting Van Halen to play on Beat It on that Michael Jackson track as a way of kind of smuggling black music using using Van Halen, who again is a much, it, who is thought of as this, a kind of a peak white metal guitar, but actually his history is more complicated than that. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess Eddie Van Halen is, is that they want to, they really want to crack MTV and Prince is really trying to crack MTV and MTV really doesn't want to be cracked at this point. Um, so they're, you know, Beat It is, is really, they're trying to well, they're not trying. They're writing a rock song. They're writing a song that has all the elements of a Michael Jackson song, but it's also, you know, a rock song. So they get the hottest rock guitarist of, of the day to come down to the studio and play it. And uh, I think he was, he did it. I know he did it for free. I think there's some question about whether Quincy Jones gave Eddie two six packs of beer to play it or whether Eddie brought his own beer. Um, and he plays the solo and, um, and it, you know, it's it's one of the breakthrough songs on an album thriller, full of breakthrough songs. But there's a there's a really interesting moment right before the the solo starts where um, you hear sort of happening, and um, supposedly it's Michael Jackson hitting a, a drum case with a drumstick, and um, and I don't know how it happened. I don't know if it was premeditated, if it was Quincy Jones or not, but um, somebody clearly made the decision to leave this to leave that sound on the recording and what it ends up sounding like is, is, um, you know, somebody knocking on the door before Eddie Van Halen launches into this screaming frictionless guitar solo. 
and it's it's seems to me to be very clearly a message to MTV of you know hello here we are can we may we come in through the front door this time um, and it, a, a version of that in hip hop is sort of the way that Run DMC had to enlist Aerosmith to uh, to get rap played on MTV which also wasn't playing rap at the time. Yeah, I mean, and, and the interesting thing about, you know, Eddie Van Halen is um, whether it is or isn't my favorite music is neither here nor there. And an interesting thing about him that I noticed when he died was Lou Barlow from Sebado, who is this sort of lo-fi pioneer, you would imagine, that came up as the bassist in Dinosaur Jr. And, and this this whole world that's almost predicated on being the very opposite of everything Van Halen represents, this sort of sound of rampaging major label Reaganite capitalism. And he posted a very moving thing on, on social media where he had taken these close-ups of Eddie Van Halen's homemade guitar that he'd soldered together in his, in his garage and talked about how much this guitar meant to him when he went to see it at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and how Eddie Van Halen was just like him and just the guy tinkering in his garage and um you know diy all the way and it, it it sent me back to a biography i'd read of kurt cobain where eddie van halen makes a cameo appearance backstage at a nirvana concert and he's drunk and he's on his knees and begging to play one with the band and kurt cobain says well you know we don't have an extra guitar and he points at uh, pat smear nirvana's second guitarist and says what what about him let me play the mexican's guitar and I don't know if I believe that story because it's a little too pat and too neat and, and says things that people really wanted to say in 1990, whatever, and makes Eddie Van Halen out to be a real drunken racist asshole. And, and I went back and I looked at some, you know, MTV's rockumentary about Van Halen and it says he was Dutch, you know, he was Dutch and they came over from Holland um, but the reason they came over from Holland and nobody talked about this until really a couple of years ago when Eddie Van Halen talked about it himself at a, um, panel at the Smithsonian about sort of what it means to be American. The reason they left Holland was his dad, uh, had been a clarinetist and saxophone player and was touring the world and met a woman in Indonesia and got together with her and they moved back to Holland and uh, and they were treated as second class citizens, and they moved to uh, to America, where Eddie and his brother Alex were put into a segregated school system in Pasadena, a school system that didn't integrate until the seventies, and uh, and were considered in the in the parlance of the day colored because they were Asian. So I thought it was fascinating how, in the space of you know twenty years, Eddie Van Halen has gone from drunken racist asshole on his knees at a Nirvana concert to sort of a biracial hero of, of rock and roll. So it's interesting sort of that that's not a story about how fluid the categories are. Eddie Van Halen was half Dutch and half Indonesian on the day he was born. And that's what he was on the day that he died. But, but uh, you know, but, but the world changes too. But could you classify him as a country musician in any way? He's, he's got some stuff that, there's some stuff that you listen to when Van Halen goes really bad, when it goes wrong and not obviously went wrong with Sammy Hagar. And I can't listen to any of that stuff, but even in the David Lee Roth days, there are these weird songs where he's playing some sort of, you know, country chicken picking type stuff. I mean, he's, he's, he's country in, in the sense that, you know, country music has always, well, all American music, actually, you could say the same thing. Even punk famously didn't have 
guitar solos, but Billy Zoom's a hell of a guitarist. You know, we we celebrate virtuoso musicians, but country has certainly had a history of Merle Travis and Chet Atkins and and just Merle Haggard for that matter of incredible, incredible guitarists and incredible musicianship. Uh, one of the great joys of, uh, of the Ken Burns documentary was, uh, Marty Stewart, who has, is is that who I'm thinking of? Marty, Marty Stewart with the crazy hair and the scarves. Yeah. Yeah. That's Marty Stewart. Yeah. Uh, who I, I never really paid attention to because he looks like a rhinestone, you know, rhinestone cowboy and has hair feathered more than, more than Van Halen ever feathered his and, and. And I, I went down a YouTube hole of just watching, you know, all of these Marty Stewart performances, whether he's playing guitar or mandolin, where just the level of musicianship is is com- completely off the charts, remarkable, um, and inspiring, beautiful, tasteful, where where you don't expect it. I don't know if I'm answering a, a question here. So no, Eddie Van Halen wasn't. I don't think he was country, except in the sense that country music is really the blues and everything is really the blues in American music. So in that sense, sure. And also in terms of virtuoso musicianship in country performers, I mean, it's virtuoso singers. I mean, in a way that, I mean, the way that some country singers, their voices are, you know, as a, as a virtuoso instrument. Well, I was reading, uh, I don't know if you read it or not, but I was reading, uh, Warren Zane's biography of, uh, Tom Petty and, um, I think it's George Harrison talking about how, you know, when they got the traveling Wilburys together and, um, you know, who's in that band, Jeff Lynn, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, Dylan, um, and how excited they were to get Tom Petty because Tom Petty had that tear in his voice or that tear in his voice. I don't even, I always read it and, and I can't tell if they're, if they mean it one way or the other. And it sort of worked works both ways but certainly jimmy rogers had it and certainly hank williams had it and i think petty had it and um oh so that's an interesting question right howling wolf started howling because he was trying and failing to imitate jimmy rogers yodel and that howl that moan that high-pitched moan was the the closest he could get i'm working on a piece about robert johnson now and um can i read you something yeah, this is little uh, little brother Montgomery, and it's it's Carl Hagstrom Miller is quoting it in his book Segregated Sound. He said, "If I could record whatever I wanted to play, I would have recorded some great some great numbers, ballads, and things like that." But they have had us in a bracket. If he wasn't no great blues player or played some hell out of a boogie or something, they weren't going to let us record. No way. Robert Johnson comes along in in the mid thirties and starts recording all these, you know, amazing blues songs, country blues songs that are based on Sun House songs or Charlie Patton songs or Skip James songs. But his sister just published, uh, his stepsister published a memoir this year. And it's amazing to think that um, there's, there are people around who have Robert Johnson in their living memory, but, but they are, there are, she was 11 when he died. And uh, she talks about how he loved Gene Autry movies and would sit around the house playing and singing Jimmy Rogers songs and how he had the yodel down pat. Um, But, you know, there was no money in hearing Robert Johnson singing a Jimmy Rogers song. Um, So there are just these giant swaths of, of, musical history that we're not, you know, we don't have access to because they weren't recorded because they, they, they had no place in, in the categories, but, um, and the categories are, are stupid and don't apply. You, you know, you listen to, uh, 
you know that Sly Stone record, There's a Riot Going On? Yeah, yeah. There's a record on that called Spaced Cowboy, where he yodels his way through through a cowboy song. And I mean, is that is that country music? Why is that any less country music than whatever Graham Parsons is playing? Is is Graham Parsons country music? Yeah. I, it's sort of who cares until somebody comes along and makes a movie about it, or you know, or needs to stick it in this record rack and not that record rack. But um, but 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 why? You know, why can't it? And it doesn't seem to happen to. Um, you know, it doesn't seem to happen to other forms of music, but it but it really really does happen to music that's rooted in. I, I don't even want to say working class. It's not just working class, but rooted in American vernacular music. Rooted music that's rooted in folk culture keeps being separated and and segregated and and exploited. And then historians come along and and come up with these very pat you know hoary old narratives. Like for instance, rock and roll is. You know, we all know that rock and roll is what happens when you cross country music and rhythm and blues. But when you look at that, what, what does that mean? Country music is rhythm and blues, and rhythm and blues is country music. And even if they're not the same music, it, it's not a mix of country and, and rhythm and blues. It's white artists predominantly playing music that's African American music predominantly. And, you know, you go back to, Elvis Presley in, you know, 1956, before anyone accused him of being a racist, or actually right around the time people started accusing him of being a racist, saying, this is, you know, this is music that I heard in Memphis back in the day, and and this is the music that I grew up with, and this is clearly black music. It has nothing to do with white music, even though it has everything to do with white music in other ways. And he's, he says, nobody paid it any attention until I goosed it up. And the reason I, I think about this, I think so much and end up writing about it, um, even though I keep trying to not write about it and write about something else. But the reason that I keep coming back to it is it's such a perfect, perfectly shitty microcosm of, of the country itself where we just can't get away from these questions and can't move, can't move past them. And I always think of this interview that, that Paul Beatty did, um, that I also saw on YouTube somewhere, you know, he wrote this book, uh, well, he wrote a lot of books, but he was, he's promoting the sellout, his last book, that the, the one that won the booker and the interviewer is asking him, um, umpteenth question about race. I don't remember what the question was. And, and Paul Beatty sort of stops and says, well, you know, everyone's always talking about the table, you know, and like, we should bring race to the table and we need a place to talk about race at the table. And, and he says, but, but you know what is I've never seen the table. Where is the table? Like what what, what is the table? There's there's no fucking table. There's just people trying to navigate the world, um, and then there are capitalists trying to make money. You know, and then there are the folks that run MTV. And I I grew up on MTV, so I don't have any interest in slagging it. And it doesn't matter at MTV whether I slag it or not. It's a thing in the world. And they don't play music anymore, but um, but gosh, they did a lot of damage, you know, back back in the eighties. And there was a lot of great music that didn't get played, and and there was a lot of really horrifyingly bad music that came mostly out of Eddie Van Halen that got played. And uh, Eddie Van Halen would say, "Don't blame me," and some people do blame him. So so maybe what all come out of TikTok and and you know and, and GarageBand and and SoundCloud is 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 a better I hate to use words like integrated. Just you don't even need the word integrated. Just a better, not even a better world. Just more of the world as it is. Alex Abramovich, thank you very much. 
You can read Alex Abramovich's piece on country in the last issue of the LRB. The new issue of the paper, out now, includes Wang Shuyang on China after COVID and Paul Keegan on T.S. Eliot's correspondence with Emily Hale. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.